Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Gender-based violence might seem niche, but as we are going to hear, domestic violence, abuse and harassment are seriously common and they are potent business issues. Today, I am joined by two of the most important thinkers and activators the world has in addressing gender-based violence and the ways business can be a positive force. Meet social impact pioneers Jane Pillinger and Craig Wilkinson. Together, they are going to share their practical wisdom for women and men, for individuals and organisations, to help make it safe for everyone, everywhere. Jane is a global expert on ending gender-based violence at work. She regularly advises global businesses, governments and international organisations, including, for example, the ILO and UN Women. She is the author of several books and numerous articles on the topic including the recent book, Stopping Gender-Based Violence in the World of Work. Jane is a former specialist advisor to the UK House of Commons Select Committee on Employment, a former visiting professor in gender studies at the London School of Economics, and she is currently a senior research fellow in the Department of Criminology and Social Policy at the Open University in the UK. Craig is a best-selling South African author and award-winning social entrepreneur and dad coach. He is passionate about the role men and fathers play in the lives of their children and society. Drawing on his experience as a single dad, raising two children to adulthood, and years of working with men, Craig has produced outstanding resources for fathers. Check them out in the words that sit alongside this podcast, if that wasn't enough. Craig is also the founder and CEO of Father a Nation, whose mission is to restore and equip men to be great fathers, mentors, and role models. Craig advocates for men, champions men, provides the most positive practical ways for men and women to better support one another. Craig is the author of No Excuse for Abuse, the authentic masculinity book, The Six Pack for Champion Virtues, and the co-founder of the No Excuses campaign. Craig was awarded the GQ Humanitarian Man of the Year Award in 2019. So, Jane, Craig, welcome. Thank you so much, Katie. Great to be here and great to meet you, Jane. Thanks very much, Katie, for inviting me and uh, great to meet you both. I'm so excited to have you both on here. So both of you guys have been part of the Business Fights Poverty podcast before. You are experts, absolute global sort of huge voices in terms of gender equity, but you've never met. So I'm really excited. The wonderful people from AB and Bev have connected us all today and we're really here to talk very seriously about women and gender-based violence but also about men's role in that and Craig I wanted to start our conversation so the last time that we talked was August 2021 when you generously shared your journey as a father and how it really sparked father a nation 
I just wanted to get a bit of an update. How are things going? How's the work championing positive masculinity and the sort of no excuse for abuse campaign? Oh, thanks, Katie. It's, it's going very well. There's always the frustration of wanting to scale up. The work that needs to be done is so huge, particularly in a country like South Africa, where gender-based violence, sadly, rape are such big uh, factors in our society, and fatherlessness too. And the link between all of those is, is absolutely huge. So work's going well. We're very excited about it. Had a lot of uh, support from corporations and, a lot of, and individuals. And we've rolled out a number of different programs with men. And we're just finding incredible results. When we get men talking and men in groups together, and we start to teach positive masculinity, there's a, there's a, there's a deep hunger for that. And finding that a lot in schools too with teenage boys, um, there's such a lot of confusion around masculinity at the moment and such a lot of demonization of masculinity. So to be able to speak to boys in their formative years and just say, hey, guys, you are designed to make a difference, to, be, to, to make a positive difference. And true masculinity is a real gift to the world. So we're finding a tremendous response, but we want to scale up. You know, it's frustrating that we have any victims at all ever of gender-based violence, and we want to eliminate that. And, and bringing you in now, Jane, I mean, we talked mid-lockdown, so July 2020, when gender-based violence sadly hit headlines for all the wrong reasons and as a kind of key business responsibility when people were trapped in their homes. Hopefully, globally, we're coming out of that lockdown why is domestic violence still a workplace issue? Well, Katie, it's always been a workplace issue. It was just amplified and brought into media attention because of the, you know, the global COVID-19 pandemic. And more and more women in particular were working from home, also with added responsibilities for childcare, often trapped at home uh, with abusers. And for some, for some women, it was abuse starting for the first time. So we had a lot of kind of impact. We saw a lot of impact of the pandemic in terms of uh, confinement and lockdowns, doubling of numbers of women seeking support and help. And this raised really important questions about the workplace as being the home. So what actually was really interesting, it was very challenging, in fact, for many employers to think about how they could support women at home who were working from home and also the duty of care that employers have for the safety and health of their employees also ex extended to the private home. So it became very challenging. And today, as we've come out of lockdowns, as people return to work, we've got new patterns, a, ch a massively changing world of work with new forms of teleworking, of hybrid working, of more people working from home, actually. But we've also got the added challenges of I think what you know broadly we could define as as digitalization, but also much more extensive forms of abuse taking place by social media, um, threats, um, violence, aggression um, being perpetrated via digital means as well. So I think we have a, a huge changing world of work. And domestic violence has always been there. It's just that it's taking different forms and particularly in the workplace we see the impact of domestic violence taking oh, myriad forms so for example if you're experiencing domestic violence it's less likely that you will progress in your career we know this from survey evidence because coercive control means that often you're unable to participate in workplace events workplace training that actually the whole process of domestic violence control means that you're unable to progress in your career. So 
we know this has an impact on the gender pay gap. It has an impact on equality and diversity strategies for companies that want to see women moving into senior positions. And if we if we to understand from you know, all of the workplace surveys, all the employee surveys that have been carried out across the world, on average, we see that a one in three of all women working have experienced some form of domestic violence. And we're talking here not just about physical violence, we're talking about coercive control, psychological forms of control. We're talking also about financial abuse. And we're also talking about uh, ways in which companies can now work with women to help support them and provide safe spaces for them to disclose domestic abuse, keep them in work, stop them from being forced to leave their jobs and to ensure that they have independent incomes to both survive and move out of domestic abusive relationships. So it's still a huge issue. We've seen domestic violence increasing over the years, but we've also seen much greater awareness and more and more companies implementing policies that are providing things like you know paid domestic violence leave to enable women to attend court cases to you know visit the police to get information and support from domestic violence organizations and so on and craig i mean i know the work that you do isn't just about domestic abuse and and violence thinking of the whole and, and also around that sort of pivoting and making sure that positive role models are really there how indeed why can companies really respond appropriately to support employees, whether they're experiencing this, whether they're part of it, or indeed just want to be a positive element within making work a, a safe and positive experience? Right. I mean, just to add on to what Jane was saying, I mean, the, the work has become more part of the home and, and, and home more part of the work. Someone put it active. They said, we don't uh, work from home. We sleep at work. And uh, I, I think we've gotten to know people a lot better. You know, we know the kind of cat they have, you know, how many babies they have, because we will see them in the background during Zoom calls. And I think there's a, there's a very powerful statement, I think it was made by Stephen Covey, who said, or Scott Peck, to the extent that a society has values, law is not necessary. But to the extent that a society doesn't have values, law is unenforceable. And I think what that means is that we need to have a value system where these kinds of things, any form of abuse whatsoever, and Jane mentioned, it just comes in myriad forms, are, are just absolutely not acceptable at the value system that we have as a society. And, um, and all corporates are a microcosm of society. So if we can change the culture, change the value system, and that, that always starts with leadership, to say that this kind of behavior and this kind of attitude, any form of demeaning, any form of putting someone down because of gender or any other you know, external quality is absolutely and completely unacceptable. So if we in corporations work very hard to create a culture of equality, a culture of, of mutual respect and understanding, and start that with the leadership and the leadership down, and particularly men in this particular area, you know, men need to be more vocal and more, more stand out in terms of speaking up and out against these kinds of things. Because you can have the best policies in the world. Countries can have the best um, laws in the world. But if, if there's a general sense of unlawfulness in the hearts and the minds and the values of the people who live in the country, it's going to be very difficult to, to implement that law. There are always loopholes and, and, uh, and ways around it. So culture becomes a very important thing, as well as the policies and procedures. Policies and procedures and awareness is not enough. It's crucial and critical. Second, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but another key thing to do is have a system whereby 
any report of any kind is taken very seriously. Due process is followed absolutely fairly and confidentially and safely so that um, there's an awareness of what gender-based violence is. We, we find a lot of people think gender-based violence is only restricted to the physical or the sexual. And as Jane pointed out, it's, it's, it's far broader than that. So educating staff as to what are the different forms of it and creating a system whereby it's absolutely safe to report this and will be handled with utmost sensitivity, seriousness, and there will be consequences for it. I think these are some of the things that we can do uh, as organizations. And it's, and it's much easier to do it in an organization because it's a microcosm. It's a smaller contained system whereby you can implement these kinds of things. Just to add to that, actually, Craig, it's really interesting you say that. And what are, because, you know, having policies and procedures in place is really important. That, but my research has found, and particularly in the global south, that you know, a lot of companies today do have policies and procedures mm. in place, but there's no trust amongst the workers, Correct. the employees. Correct. Correct. So what I've been looking at is what are the triggers for companies, um, employers to ensure that safe spaces exist, that there are trusted mechanisms. And two things that I've found out in my work over the last few years is one is First of all, is is companies that have systems for equitable management and equitable leadership. So that starts right at the top of the company. It's about having equality and diversity strategies, but it's building it into all levels of an organization. And that those equitable or equity management styles are also about inclusion, respect and dignity. And the second element is the role of social dialogue and the presence of women in particular in trade unions. And one of the things we've seen in the, the garment sector, for example, in the global south, is that where there have been transformations around sexual harassment in the workplace, in garment factories in India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Cambodia, so on and so forth, it's where there have been the presence of women in trade unions actually developing zero tolerance policies on sexual harassment, including domestic violence as well. So I think we need to be looking at, you know, what works how we can bring these processes into you know usual normal currency rather than being rather extraordinary examples of best practice we want to see this mainstreamed right. right the way through and building trust is so crucial and we've seen this time and time again where you know there might have been a big case of sexual harassment or and you know there was a non disclosure agreement and then it all disappeared and went silent and it continued to yeah. exist and we've seen that around domestic violence, that women end up by losing their jobs because they're turning up to work late. And nobody has ever thought, why has there been a change in her behavior at work? Is there something we can do to keep her in the employment? And I think these are critical questions that we need to be asking around our strategies of, of decent work, inclusion, uh, and so on. 100%. I mean, the, the trust issue is so crucial. I mean, we, we used to tell a bit of a joke in, in, in our HR work is that, you know, this company has an open door policy and, and the employees would say, yeah, we know it's an open door policy. We've seen many people walk through that open door and they never come back again. You know, so the policy is open door, but when you, when you walk through the open door, you don't get treated as though it's an open door. And that's, that is creating that environment and that culture right from the top of trust, of respect, of equity. And, and, and I think a lot of training is needed for that. Unfortunately, the HR function and the DNI functions are often seen as a necessary evil or something that, that, that organizations tolerate. 
and not part of the core business. And we need to bring it into the core of this organism we organism we call the business so that it functions uh, in a very healthy fashion. And and Jane, I know that you've been working on a toolkit specifically or, or multiple sort of elements of toolkits to bring in and engage different parts of the business. Do you want to just talk to that a little bit? Yes, I mean, actually something that's very relevant to this conversation is that uh, we're just completing a global toolkit um, that's going to be jointly published and sponsored by Business Fights Poverty and ABMBEV. And the toolkit really amasses all of the evidence that we have about domestic violence as a workplace issue, but is very practical in raising awareness about giving some very concrete, practical tools that can be adopted by companies at the senior level of management, by line managers in terms of how they can support and provide a supportive environment for uh, survivors of domestic violence to be able to speak out and get support, but also you know, information for co-workers and colleagues who are often the first point of call for somebody who's experiencing domestic violence. I mean, we know from, from research that in the workplace, a survivor is more likely to talk to a trusted work colleague than before talking to somebody in HR or a line manager. So we need to also empower work colleagues to know how to respond rather than also, you know, being part of this general climate and culture of victim blaming, a culture of, of silence and shame around domestic violence. And also the toolkit gives some advice about what you can do if you're a survivor of domestic violence, somebody that's currently experiencing domestic violence or indeed surviving from it. So it's very practical. And the idea of this toolkit is that it is, you know, it's drawing all of the evidence of, of good practices of work with other companies like, for example, Vodafone, which was the first global company to have a global policy on domestic violence as a workplace issue, it was the first global company to introduce the 10 days paid domestic violence leave as a principle, is really drawing on all of those experiences across the world from many companies today to say, this is what we know, this is what we know works, and this is a practical way that you can respond. So we're hoping that this can be the beginning of bringing together more companies to help raise awareness about the issue, bring them into learning hubs, peer circles through Business Fights Poverty, and, and really help to amplify the learning of what we know works in terms of addressing the issues of domestic violence as a workplace issue, and also knowing the limits of what we can and cannot do in the workplace. Because there is sometimes, you know, a kind of a fear of knowing if we open a door to this, are we going to be able to deal with it? And what are we going to be able to do to, to deal with the sort, of, the sort of what some people have seen as the floodgates? So there's a kind of sense of closing the door because we're frightened of what might happen. But this is really about helping to empower and build responses so that there is you know, appropriate, relevant responses that people are clear about what they can and cannot do at a workplace level. And when you refer on to others. So we use this, this kind of, you know, I think it's it's being adopted by a lot of companies now, and it's based on an original framework that came from the domestic violence sector, which is to recognize the problem, but then to, to deal with the problem and, and respond in appropriate ways. And then thirdly, to refer on to specialists so that you shouldn't in the workplace be seeing yourself as an expert, but really facilitating workplace supports and communications. And then refer on to specialist organisations, domestic violence 
legal support services and so on. And Craig, in a moment, I want to sort of come on to that piece that Jane just touched on about holding what's holding companies back and, and how we can sort of overcome those hurdles. But Craig, I wanted to just ask you a little bit around there's quite a lot of noise at the moment, uh, particularly in the country I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in the UK, around a sort of rise through social media of negative elements of masculinity and uh, younger boys and men getting ex- sort of, you know, overly excited about going back to telling women to, you know, get back to the kitchens, etc. How do we break this silence, change this culture around the victim blaming that Jane just talked about, about the culture of shame? Is there a way that we can we can just reverse that cycle? It's such a deep topic, this, uh, Katie. I, you know, one would need a weekend seminar to really delve into all of it. But a number of elements. One is we, we need more men to speak out strongly, openly, and unequivocally about, you know, what, what Jane called the zero tolerance. We, we absolutely need that. We need – and I think what's happened is a backlash against the demonization of men. I think what's happening, I'm finding this a lot. I mean, some of the surveys that are coming out where men are asked, is masculinity a good thing or a bad thing? Young men are saying it's a bad thing. So, so the extreme response to toxic masculinity, which is a very real thing, is to demonize masculinity, which causes a backlash. And, you know, we just go around in circles. So there's a real need to teach young boys and men what masculinity is, what it actually is. And, and it, it's, it's about service, isn't it? It's about the, the, the more strength one has, the more power one has. And whether that's political power, economic power, relational power, physical power, strength, uh, or positional power in an organization, the more of that you have, the more of a sacred trust you have to, to dispense the, of that in a, in, a, in a manner that is uplifting and, and helpful and serving. And so, so in, in the book that I wrote about gender-based violence, I, I talk about four reasons why men abuse, not excuses, because there's never, ever an excuse. But one of the reasons is wounded masculinity, broken masculinity, because the natural inclination of a healthy, of healthy masculinity, and, and when I say masculinity, you know, every woman has an element of masculinity, as just as every man has an element of femininity. But healthy masculinity, the, the natural instinct is to protect, never ever to abuse, never ever to take what's not, it's never ever to dominate. And so any kind of masculinity that dominates and takes what's not is or operates out of fear is a wounded form of masculinity. It's not the instinct that is within healthy masculinity. So there are many causes of wounded masculinity, and then that in a seminar. But wounded masculinity, men who've grown up wounded, badly parented, not parented at all, uh, no male role models, is a very, very big cause of, of all forms of gender-based violence. The second cause is a false concept of what masculinity is. And if you think about the society we grew up in, and, and media perpetrates this, and, and uh, social media perpetrates this, and our peers do. It's all about, uh, you know, if, if I could call the four lies of masculinity or false masculinities, sex, power, money, and big boys don't cry. You know, these are the things that men grow up with. You need to be dominant. You need to have power. You need to be, be a player and successful with, with multiple partners. And by the way, you can't cry. So these are, these are very false notions of what it means to be a man. And we need to break those notions and make it okay for men to say that, you know, the opposite applies, you know, vulnerability is not a weakness, vulnerability is a courageous strength. Dominating someone is not masculinity, that's abuse. Serving someone with whatever you have is true masculinity. So, and the, the third one is a false notion about the value and contribution of women. 
certain cultures, and, and it's certainly been perpetrated in certain aspects of the media, boys grew up thinking that a woman has a certain place. A woman can't lead or a woman needs to, as you said earlier, Katie, must be back in the kitchen. And it's a total misconception and misconstruing of, of the relative roles of male and female as, as equal and co-creators of the world and of the future. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of educating men about what masculinity is and about men standing up more against the false masculinity. And women too, unfortunately, often have this um, a codependent type relationship between masculine and feminine where, where the masculine, and it happens in the, in the reverse order too, but, but, but far less often, you have the narcissist and the empath. And it's a perfect uh, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? The narcissist dominates and loves himself and wants everything his way. And the empath tries to heal and restore. And, and you know, often, often the feminine energy is wanting to, to, to make peace and to, to be the glue that holds everything together. And it's such a beautiful gift to the world. But when that's misused and abused by the narcissist who just wants to dominate, you get this very unhealthy dynamic. And I think the more people are educated as to these kinds of dynamics, the more we're able to see it very clearly and, and to put in place a culture and mechanisms and toolkits. I love what Jane is doing there to, to, to counter this. I was just thinking what you were saying there about, you know, boys not having any male role models. I, I think boys have huge numbers of male role models. It's just that they're often inappropriate role models. And I think what we want, this is why I find it really exciting to see more men getting involved in the anti-gender-based violence movement, because Actually, boys will listen to men in the way that they don't listen to women. 100%. And this is also about having positive male role models. I think that's the issue. Positive male role models in parenting, as fathers, as work colleagues, as respectful human beings. And I think this is going to be absolutely crucial in the future to how, you know, how our people um, interact with each other because. While we still have a strong culture, and I've done some work in South Africa as well, and I'm very aware of the terrible problems of gender-based violence, but you know it's the same all over the world. It's just in different degrees in different countries. That there's still in right across the world a culture of impunity. That women, you know, that 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 somehow men are permitted to abuse women, and that there isn't a strong backlash against it. So. When there are cases of rape, for example, it's really, really harmful for women to report rape because they have to go through a double form of harm in giving evidence of, of being cross-examined and so on. And I think there's, there's really something to be said about how we develop our judicial system so that it becomes easier to report. And going back to the workplace, again, building those structures into the workplace that, that build respect, dignity, um, and a sense in which, and I think what we've seen in the past in cases of sexual harassment and domestic violence is that we don't treat everybody the same. We treat those in the more senior positions with privilege. So we protect high value employees a lot. Uh, because so the, you know the company believes that the high value employee is going to be important in the future and bring money and respect and so on, um, and we don't support the women who are in the most vulnerable situations in the workplace. So we're starting from a situation often often of inequality, and I think the second thing I'd like to just add 
is that men can also experience domestic violence. We know that you know it disproportionately affects women, but we know that men can experience domestic violence. And I remember in one of the interviews, I, I've done a lot of interviews with survivors of domestic violence in terms of what the workplace can do to support them. And I remember one man that I interviewed who said, I never ever told anybody. I just said that I had a mental health problem. And actually, it was only through later counselling that he realised that what he had been experiencing was domestic violence. And it was a form of psychological control that eventually he got out of. And it was a very unhealthy relationship. But men often find it very hard to come forward, actually, to seek that support in the workplace because of all of those cultural stereotypes that exist around who commits abuse, who is a victim, and so on. So I think we have to get away from these notions of, you know, victimization, of gender stereotypes, of cultures of impunity, so that actually it's safe for anybody who experiences domestic violence to come forward, regardless of their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their age. I mean, we know, for example, that, you know, both younger women and older women experience domestic violence, but it's often not recognised that it's something that somebody might experience in in later life. We know that disabled women are twice as likely to experience domestic violence than non-disabled women. So we need to be aware of who is more vulnerable, who needs extra support and protection, and to have our, our, our eyes open to this. And we've just talked about quite a lot in terms of the individual and supporting individuals, and then the sort of policies that surround that. But sort of stepping up a level, how can we get more companies to, and all countries indeed, to lean into, be vocal, stand up, make noise, be part of addressing the gender-based violence challenges, whether it's ratifying the ILO Convention 190 or indeed beyond that. Um, Jane, do you want to go first and then bring in Craig? Yeah, I mean, just in terms of Convention 190, what is really exciting about it at the moment is that there's a lot of companies that are now saying, okay, we're going to use the framework of Convention 190 for our workplace policies, for our global framework agreements that we're negotiating with the trade unions, with our collective bargaining agreements at the workplace and countries that, that have collective bargaining systems. And let's use that as our framework for our workplace policies. And I find that really exciting and for two reasons, because first of all, Convention 190 deals with the problem of gender-based violence as a human rights issue. And that's really phenomenal. It's a human rights issue. The second is that it deals with obligations on governments and employers to put in place things like workplace policies, carry out risk assessments, build it into occupational safety and health right across the board to prevent and address the problem. So I think that's a very, very big lever, particularly for those countries that have ratified the convention. So far, 22 countries have ratified the convention, and there are expected to be 50 countries ratified the convention by the end of next year. So that's really positive development. The second thing is that I think companies are realising now that there's a strong business case. And one of the things I did in my recent research was to collect together all of the evidence of, across the world, of days lost from work because of domestic violence, productivity or presenteeism uh, deficits that arise because of gender-based violence and domestic violence. And 
what are the impacts of losing valued employees and then having to recruit new employees and so on? So there are massive financial costs for companies, but also my sense and, you know, working with Business Fights Poverty, it's very, very exciting to see companies taking a strong social impact lens on their roles. So more and more companies are realizing, actually, it's the right thing to do. It's part of our management systems. It's part of our liaison with our managers, with our employees to make sure that we have a dignified and inclusive workplace. And it's really, really interesting. Um, just coming back to equitable leadership, there's some really interesting research that's been carried out about how you know, management systems and the roles of managers can actually improve both the level of reduction of cases of sexual harassment, but also better responses to issues like domestic violence and retain employees, build productivity and so on. And Craig, what about yourself from from your experience? You know, how do we get at an organisational level more organisations to step into this? Well, I think, as Jane said, I mean, there's a very strong business case, but there's also a very strong ethical case is that this is a human rights issue. And uh, where we've tended to head in in, in the direction of internationally um, with regards to social media is polarisation. You know, identity politics polarises, but in the process, we dehumanise. we need to go back to the point of realizing that every single one of us is first and foremost a human being, and that's our primary value, and that's our primary basis of equality and dignity and respect and, and worthiness of equal opportunity. And uh, so when we get back to that kind of understanding of humanity and we realize this is a human rights issue, it becomes a very strong ethical imperative for organizations to go back to humanizing every single person in the workplace. In terms of implementation, I think it's so important to go back to the concept of policies and procedures are fantastic and adopting adopting these conventions is absolutely crucial. And and I'm equally excited as Jane about this. But we need to go further than that. We need to, because you, and I'll give an example. We've had many cases in South Africa where a woman has reported a rape or an assault to a male police officer. And that police station has excellent policies and procedures around this. But the police man who takes the report will say to her things like, what did you, what were you wearing? You know, there's the victim blaming type thing. So going further than just policy and procedure and convention is to actually transformative training for each and every individual that's in, in, in the organization in terms of implementing this. You can have a line manager that um, is a total misogynist. He has a very good, a very good policy. Someone reports to him, but the way he implements the policy is completely separate and different. So I think there needs to be convention policy procedure, which are, you know, world-class and best case. And then, you know, Jane is, is absolutely the expert at that. And these conventions are great. And we need to add to that transformational training, particularly amongst male employees in terms of, you know, you, you have this issue of intent versus impact. So someone can say something and the intention might be um, absolutely harmless, but the impact on the person might be very harmful. So it's creating an awareness of the things that I say and the things that I do and the way that I look and behave. What impact are they having on people that I might not even be aware of? And this kind of training added to the convention policies will definitely bring about uh, a big transformation. And Craig, just to add, I couldn't agree with you more because the problem is we can have brilliant laws, policies, procedures, but if we don't implement them, they're absolutely useless. And I think that's why you know, this transformational approach is so important and multidimensional. And just just to add also that I think, 
you know, absolutely what you're saying. This is so tied up to the importance of decent and respectful work. So if you give, you know, low wages to somebody, if you assume that you can exploit somebody in the workplace um, by not giving them decent work, expecting them to work long hours and so on. We've seen this in, you know, precarious working situations in, in, in many global supply chains, particularly in the garment sector, in agriculture and so on. If we treat people without decent work, we're going to treat them without respect and, and dignity. So I think all of this is tied up with having good working conditions, good policies and procedures, good systems of management, and ensuring that everybody has the chance to have good economic livelihoods. Because and we have enough resources in the world to ensure that this, this, this can take place. So I think, you know, Convention 190 is is absolutely critical as a framework because it says right from the beginning this is something that employers and governments have to do and that's a really good starting point but let's let's get them to work together to make this a reality and this is our chance to do this it really is an opportunity to get something very important in terms of transformation a transformational gender equality approach in, in into place and Craig, if you were, for those listening, whether they're male, female, in between, doesn't matter. If you were sort of talking to somebody who was listening to this conversation today, what would you say to them to help encourage them to be part of the solution? Or what should they be saying to others to encourage others to be part of the solution? Absolutely start with yourself. You know, I mean, that it's become a cliched hackneyed saying, but, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think for us, and particularly for, for men, I'd say, look in the mirror, you know, examine yourself. Are there triggers, things that trigger you off? Are there, uh, are there anger issues that you have? You know, look, look, look at the impact that you have on the people around you. I think for me, this is, the, this, is the, this is the fundamental measure of success for a man is what impact do I have on the people around me? My loved ones, my colleagues, you know, those, uh, look at the impact you're having on the people around you. Are they better off because you're in their lives? Are they blossoming and flourishing and thriving? I think it's Oscar Wilde said there are two kinds of men, you know, those who, uh, when people, when they arrive, people rejoice when they arrive and others, uh, people rejoice when they leave. You know, we've got to, to look at ourselves and, and see the impact we're having. I think examine our beliefs about masculinity. You know, if we have a macho type belief about masculinity, I need to dominate, I need to always lead, I can't report or submit to a woman. You know, we need to examine the, these false concepts about masculinity. We need to examine our beliefs about women too and say, you know, do we honestly, honestly view women as equal and co equal partners and in co-creating the future? I think for men too, it's a matter of uh, being, if you're a father, being a great father, being a great role model, being a great mentor. And I think, you know, for men, I also say be dangerous. You know, this sounds counterintuitive, but we need to be dangerous, not ever to women, children, each other as men, but be dangerous to whatever is threatening to women, children, society, you know, racism, prejudice, uh, all these kind of things. We need to be dangerous to that. Those things need to fear masculinity because we need to stand up against them. To women, I always say, don't accept false masculinity. You know, don't. Women have a greater tendency than men to want to fix and to be peacemakers and to be conciliators. And, and sometimes in the process of doing that, they women accept things that shouldn't be accepted. You know, we need to draw a line in the sand and say, this is unacceptable. This makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to accept it. And in standing up against that, one often needs allies. You, know, you need to reach out 
because there's often power, often power imbalances in standing up against inequality or, or threatening or abuse. But but getting allies on board your side and saying I'm not going to accept that that is not okay. I think to a good message to to women is to truly deeply value your contribution to the world. You know, as an equal partner and co-creator of the future, you play an invaluable role. And value that. Never ever underestimate that. No matter what you've been through. So these are some of the things. There are many more I could say, but these are some of the things I think that are very important. Oh, and I cannot tell you what a privilege it is to be part of this conversation, eavesdropping virtually, uh, Jane <laughs> and, and Craig. I feel like I literally could be a fly on your wall for uh, days. But I am going to draw this conversation to a bit of a close with my final question, which is what is next for you? Uh, Jane, would you lead us out? Where are you going next? What does 2023 bring for you? Well, I'm going to continue doing this work on gender-based violence because I think we're actually at a really important point in our history, um, partly because of Convention 190, but also because we're entering a a very different uh, world full of digitalization, changing working practices and so on. So I think there's huge challenges. And I'm really looking forward to the launch of the toolkit, which is now completed. and to sharing that with companies across the world and helping to build the understanding of what we can do around domestic violence and indeed sexual harassment. I also work quite a bit on on sexual harassment across uh, global supply chains. So I'm really, really interested to see more of an approach that brings together all of the different dimensions of gender-based violence, sexual harassment, domestic violence, but also other forms of, of workplace violence um, into one framework because they're all interrelated. So that's that's where I'm at. And I'm really excited about the, the, the year coming forward and to continue working on this issue. Thank you, Jane. I feel like you're going to be a very busy lady. Uh, Craig, what about yourself? Well, yes, excited as Jane is. Um, you know, I wear two hats. One is running the nonprofit organisation Father a Nation which works very closely with AB and Bev, uh, implementing the No Excuse campaign. And we've developed um, some free resources with their, with their help, online resources for men and for women, uh, talking about gender-based violence, why it happens and what we need to do to overcome it. You know, anyone can, can access that. We're going to be pushing that very hard. Another one's aimed at men. It's called the Six Pack of Masculine Virtues, and it just talks about the six virtues that every man needs to embrace and live by. Also, a free online course. So that's exciting, and we're growing that uh, in schools as well. We'll be doing a lot of work with schools, a lot of underprivileged schools. Um, the other hat is the Good Wilco, which is our organization where we create content around helping fathers be better fathers, helping men to be better mentors and better men and better uh, partners, uh, and, and also looking at gender-based violence and how we can overcome that at a corporate level within, within corporations. So very excited. Uh, lots to be done. Um, it's always daunting looking at the scale of what needs to be done and, and just really trying to find ways of scaling it up so that we can make more of a massive impact. Well, I'm really sad to bring this conversation to a close, but mm-hmm. I will put all the links to uh, the work that both Jane and Craig have talked about into the words that sit alongside this podcast. But sadly, I must call it close. Craig, Jane, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Katie and Craig. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 